When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Another snap. New Jersey, the state associated with urban sprawl and bustling highways, is not what many associate with its nickname, the Garden State. The primeval swamps and unfriendly soils that lay deep in the woods of what is infamously known as the Pine Barrens, a seemingly endless stretch of trees, strange shadows, waterlogged marshes, tea-colored rivers, and a landscape that transports any visitor back in time to years where humans had not yet touched the continent. The very environment that spawns images and dark dreams of devils and dragons. The Jersey Devil has become synonymous with legend. It has transfixed minds throughout books, pop culture, lore, and has even been recognized as the official state demon. It is harder to find a stranger pastiche of creatures than this bizarre gargoyle-looking beast. But, as witnesses have said, if you imagine a dragon, you're 75% of the way there. Its cloven hooves, long tail, spectacular leathery wings, horse-like head, horns, and massive size has been stitched into the memories of all children that have heard the stories. The sound of hooves on the rooftops, the nearly silent flight of wings, and the graceful darkness it brings as its shadow swoops over cabins and trees bringing nightmares to even the deepest sleepers. But it is a nightmare. Or is it? As a paranormal researcher, the thing I've learned about legends is that there is often a kernel of truth somewhere in the middle. When you dig through the tales and lore, sometimes strange truths make an appearance if you keep your mind open. The factor that keeps them as lore is what the real world calls insufficient evidence. Whether it be tracks, hair, DNA, or even a body, a lack of satisfying the one thing we can quantify, our physical senses, leaves beasts like the Jersey Devil under the dark cover of myth. In Man and Beast in American Comic Legend, folklorist Richard Dorson outlines a six-point criteria for establishing distinction among legendary creatures of American folklore. Dorson specifies that the qualifier must exist in oral tradition, 
inspire belief and conviction, become personalized and institutionalized, is fanciful or mythical and contain a comical side, which endears it to the American public. Accounts of the Jersey Devil predate printed works such as newspaper accounts, and belief in the creature persists today in culture and on shows such as In Search of Monsters. Skeptics believe the Jersey Devil to be nothing more than a creation of early English settlers, similar to boogeyman stories created and told by bored Pine Barren residents, the byproduct of a historical local disdain for the historic Leeds family, the misidentification of known animals, and rumors based on biased perceptions of the local rural population of the Pine Barrens, known as the Pineys. But just how deep does this strange legend really go? Have people really seen the Jersey Devil? For witnesses, the answer is a disturbing yes. One such reported account was given to the television show In Search of Monsters. A man fishing deep in the wilderness of the Pine Barrens was watching a herd of deer relaxing and nibbling on the foliage. The day was still, calm. The odd bird barely made a noise in the whispers of the breeze. No other animals seemed near that day, but something was out of line with nature's force. A crack of branches, a sudden stirring. The deer were alert. Ears perked as another presence made itself known. A new smell on the wind as it tickled the deer's noses. Another snap of a stick, a black shape shifting, moving in the woods beside them, watching. Another predator was breathing in the dense woods, and then an explosion. A burst of speed and blur and wings blew out of the trees like a firecracker. As the fishermen watched the deer run for their lives, trampling the earth to get away from the incoming assault, the man saw what he described as a large, black creature with a horse-like head. However, it was not lunging as a horse would gallop, with its shoulders and muscles undulating as it ran. Instead, it flew. It glided forward, with lightning speed, as if it were an arrow hunting its mark. Its feet never seemed to touch the ground as it pursued its prey with focus and fervor. The herd of herbivores running, hearts pounding, through the woods and disappearing with their predator, into the deep, dark of the Pine Barrens. Many trace the history back as far as 1736, when a tale began that gave the Jersey Devil another nickname still heard today, the Leeds Devil, birthed from a woman known now as Deborah Leeds or Mother Leeds in the old stories. Most of us know the legend well, a story retold in the film Rosemary's Baby. A woman gives birth to a cursed child which becomes a demon or a devil. The tale of Mother Leeds tells of a woman who, upon birthing her 13th child, cursed him upon his birth with the words, let this child be a devil, upon which it grew to its massive size almost immediately, sprouted wings, screamed, and took off into the Pine Barrens like a dragon unleashed. Historians, however, tell a different tale. Brian Regal, a historian of science at Keene University, contends that colonial-era political intrigue involving early New Jersey politicians Benjamin Franklin and Franklin's rival publisher, Daniel Leeds, from 1651 to 1720, resulted in the Leeds family being described as monsters, 
and it was Daniel Leeds' negative description as the Leeds Devil that created the later legend of the Jersey Devil. Ostracized by his Quaker congregation after his 1687 publication of almanacs containing astrological symbols, cosmology, demonology, occultism, and natural magic, Leeds' fellow Quakers deemed the astrology in these almanacs as too pagan, and the almanacs were considered, censored, and destroyed by the local Quaker community. Not giving in to the demands of the local community's censorship, Leeds was labeled as a traitor for rejecting Quaker beliefs, and they subsequently dismissed Leeds as evil. Titan, Daniel's son, continued his father's legacy in his own writings, and their family crest began to be printed on the almanacs that he was publishing. The crest depicted a wyvern, a dragon-headed beast with bat-like wings and two clawed feet, eerily reminiscent of the depictions of the Jersey Devil. By the early 1800s, witnesses were beginning to come forward with accounts of a creature in the woods of which they could not account for. The First Nations people of the area call the Pine Barrens the place of the dragon and lends those to wonder just what dragon they might be referring to as they were settled there long before any feuding riders. 1909 marked the height of the Jersey Devil sightings, with newspaper reports doing their best to document the terrified people's frightening stories. Vigilante groups and hunters roamed the woods in search of the creature, some claiming to have fired upon it with no effect. Even the brother of Napoleon himself, Joseph, claimed to have fired a cannon at a winged beast he could not identify. The cannonball, he later stated, seemed to pass right through the creature, leaving it unharmed as it flew on. To this day, affidavits have been presented from police officers, hunters, hikers, and residents, all claiming throughout the years to have been up close and personal with a bat-winged beast in the Pine Barrens of the Garden State. And yet, no photos exist and no tracks have been cast. Jeff Brunner of the Humane Society of New Jersey thinks the Sandhill Crane is the basis of the Jersey Devil stories, adding, there are no photographs, no bones, no hard evidence whatsoever, and worst of all, no explanation of its origins that doesn't require a belief in the supernatural. However, perhaps both legend and belief are the point. While we tend to see non-physical as a prerequisite for something being fake, this flawed belief often creates a mental pitfall. If something is not physical, then it must not be real. Scientifically, we know this is simply not true. Many things are not physical, and yet are still studied and accepted. Does insufficient evidence of the Jersey Devil make its existence obsolete? Perhaps, instead, we need to take a look at our definition of insufficiency itself. Is insufficiency the end of the story, or is it the beginning of the adventure? Is it the absence of joy, or is it the pinnacle for the beginning of new information? Is the joy in the legend itself? Or are we rooted to the idea that we cannot take pleasure or curiosity in the idea until we have a body physically manifested in front of us? Regardless of the Jersey Devil's place in American history, cryptozoology, and our pop culture, this state demon continues to make its presence known in the Pine Barrens and across the world, sparking terror, imagination, and a pursuit of the grandest curiosity.
To investigate this further, Morgan and I had a conversation with eminent folklorist, teacher, and all-around awesome person, Lynn McNeil. Here's a bit of that conversation. I am thrilled to have one of my favorite experts in this incredible field with us on supernatural circumstances. And uh, Mike, I'm I'm glad that you you get to be introduced to her as well because she's amazing. Uh, Lynn McNeil, PhD, is a professor of folklore at Utah State University. She's an active member of the American Folklore Society and International Society for Contemporary Legend Research and the Western States Folklore Society. Her areas of research and publication include legend and belief, folklore and fairy tales, the supernatural, and digital culture. Lynn, thank you for coming on thank the show today. Thank you so today. much it's for having me. Clearly, we've pre-introduction, we were already hitting the ground running with all of the good stuff to talk about. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And we've we neglected to mention your TED Talk as well, which is amazing. Oh, thank you. Yes. This is a, it, it's, it might seem strange to have supernatural folklore on one side of what I study in digital folklore on the other, but they're actually not unrelated. The study of legends, which ties closely to the study of the supernatural, was actually one of the first genres of folklore identified in digital spaces, like back in the you know bulletin boards and Usenet groups of the 1990s. So a lot of the scholars who were studying urban legends and supernatural legends ended up being the people studying the internet as a folk cultural space. So it's a strange, it's a strange connection, but it's an important one. And I really feel strongly about letting people know, hey, yeah, all this, you know, quote unquote, meaningless stuff online is actually pretty valuable. And which is a similar thing that the supernatural gets, whether online or offline. Folklorists call it the triviality barrier. People look at this stuff and say, man, this can't be important. Everyone knows it. And it's sort of like, yeah, if everyone knows it, we probably want to understand it, right? There you go. <laughs> it makes total sense. And and the Jersey Devil, I think, falls into that category so well, because, you know, like we were saying just prior to to recording here, that it's such a strange collaboration of all these animals, of all these different tales. It For you, what is this? Do you think this is something that has become a living, breathing thing? Is this pure folklore? Do you think this might be an entity? What's your take on this? Yeah. So this is really hard to piece together because I think we're seeing a lot of overlapping things. A lot of cryptids start with an experience and gain a story. So someone sees something and is like, what the heck is that? And they can't identify it. And if there's someone who's familiar with the fauna of their region, they kind of go, okay, this is a weird thing. And we end up with sort of a, a later on suggestion of, okay, maybe this was Bigfoot. Maybe this was a chupacabra or something like that. The the Jersey Devil is interesting because it has just a straight up origin story that that has been affixed to this creature. So we could look at this as a creature that's lived in this space. There's stories that, you know, before the Leeds family who who gave us that Jersey Devil origin story in many ways in the 1700s, before they were there, this region was known for being kind of a weird haunted place. So native peoples talked about creatures that lived here, dragon-like creatures, things like that. So it's possible that we have a legend 
of Mrs. Leeds and her 13th child being born a demon that got affixed to a pre-existing cryptid presence. It's also possible that we as human beings, which we know we do, love to draw connections between things. We want to connect the dots. We want to say these stories being told 300 years ago are the same stories being told 500 years ago and are the same stories being told now. And we don't always have the detail required to be able to make those claims in a really substantial way. So what we know is that we have this amalgamation of sightings, experiences, historical moments, and legends, and we sort of put them together as best we can. That makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, I had not thought about the, the idea that the story actually came in to explain something that was already there. And that's really interesting. I think with you mentioned the, the the First Nations people with the this this idea of the place of the dragon. Yeah. That it, tr- it translates to the place of the dragon. Was there tales before this about what that dragon might have been, what that looked like, or was it just an animal that they they, they were living with? You know, this is the tricky thing because, of course, that translation, right, the place of the dragon, dragon is our word. That's the English word for something. So that's our best translation right. of whatever type of creature was being described. And so we know if it were a creature that we had another name for, we would have used it, right? And I don't know the ins and outs of the First Nations people's stories here. So that's sadly not my area of expertise. But the real story here, from my purview as a folklorist, is that we have that precedent set. We have something that says, hey, there was a creature here that we, in our translation of the native tongue, have no word for other than dragon. And then this is the place where the story of the Leeds devil comes from. And then this is the place where people are reporting sightings of some creature walking across the tops of their chicken coops and and kids are being kept home from school and yeah. the, the countryside is arming itself. And we don't do that for no reason. Yeah, I agree. We might do it for a wrong reason, but we don't do it for no reason. And so we it gives us this timeline that we can put together and say, okay, we still don't have a word for the creature that people are seeing in this place. And makes so much sense. So, you know, linguistically, we the only word we had was dragon, which you know, at that time, at that time of translation would have registered as mythological creature. So we've always been seeing something we don't have a category for or a name for in this place. Is that why people have trouble with these kind of things? Because if we can't name it and we name it something fantastical like dragon, we have uh, a little more of a, a, a hill to climb as far as belief goes? Yeah, you know, it's it's a really tricky thing, the perception of supernatural belief, because as a folklorist, I know through fieldwork and ethnographic observation that the people who report supernatural experiences are not being irrational. They're not jumping to that conclusion. They're not bypassing all the totally normal, natural explanations that could be for an experience they've had and going straight to the supernatural. Most people 
are rationalizing through it. They're reasoning their way ahead. They're eliminating more expected possibilities before they get to the conclusion that maybe I saw something that we would call supernatural, which we would understand as outside what we know about the natural world. I second that completely. (laughs) I absolutely second that. Yeah, but sadly, we have this really common perception that people who believe in the supernatural are irrational. And that is completely unfounded. There's no reason for us to think that other than we tend to put irrationality on people whose beliefs differ from ours. So if someone doesn't believe in what I believe, I write them off as superstitious, irrational. I might even use offensive words like primitive or something like that to say, oh, they didn't understand what I understand about the nature of the world. And of course, the reality is that all of us incorporate supernatural beliefs into our understanding of the world. So it makes it a hard thing to study. If you were to go and ask someone, hey, do you believe in the Jersey Devil? They know the right answer. The right answer is no, of course not. But the real answer, and it's not just for the Jersey Devil, but any other cryptid, ghosts, hauntings, paranormal experiences, the real answer is almost always, well, I mean, no, but there was this one time where this thing happened that, you know, I just sort of can't explain any other way. And it's that discussion of possibility that I think keeps this genre of folklore alive because there are always possibilities to be discussed and we want to chew over those and we want to apply our intelligent, rational brains to these scenarios that we can't explain with the obvious tools at hand. So we turn to these other tools, these other ideas, these cultural traditions that say, maybe it wasn't an elk, maybe it was a Bigfoot, maybe it wasn't a sandhill crane. I completely agree. I completely agree. And and you know what's interesting too about that like it, you you brought up the whole sort of insufficient evidence type thing and for me that you're you're so on point because I think we've got this nasty habit in our culture and it's and it, it affects obviously both your field and and the parapsychological field where they believe somehow that there is no evidence and sim- that simply just isn't true. You know, yep. where I think with the Jersey devil, I mean, you know, there's, there hasn't been a photo photo taken or that, that physical sense of security that people look for in, yep. in what they feel is reality isn't there. And yet we know scientifically that there are plenty of non-physical things that are very real. Of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> but for some reason in this situation and in, in oftentimes in the paranormal situation, even when you put it into labs and it's recreated and, and yep. there's stuff that's, you know, easily provable and, and whatnot, for some reason, there's something about the tangibility of, of having something non-physical be true that a lot of people just can't seem to, to get rid of the stigma around that. Yes, I agree. And I think, too, that in the case of the Jersey Devil, it sort of suffers on two fronts. There's that, absolutely, that lack of physical evidence. There's also the presence of a legend that's originally sort of based in religious belief. This idea that Mother Leeds cursed her 13th child, to which I always say, if you've already given birth 12 times, yeah, you're cursing it. You know, like, who wants to have a 13th baby? Like you don't even have to be all you know, the women raise their hands with the devil. Exactly, right? <laughs> I mean, I'd probably start cursing from like number six on or something. But like, so you know, we have this 
we have that element to this story as well. And there are people who are ready to believe in cryptids, who are ready to believe in, in you know, relict creatures from a bygone era that have managed to survive until now in secret, who are not willing to say a woman consorted with Satan and gave birth to a demon baby who flew up the chimney after it was born. And I <laughs> yeah. think that that story unfortunately works against some of what we see as really legitimate, rationally processed experiences that people are having or that people are having in this portion of the world with a creature that that story has been sort of attached to or built around. Yeah. And I face the same issue in, in parapsychology because often what will happen is, is that the sort of the ghost hunting type television shows will do this to, to my field mm -hmm. where everybody's looking at these, these, you know, terrifying, you know, people running around with cameras and screaming and, and things like that. And they think that that's parapsychology. And it's like, it's not, <laughs> it's, like, yep. it's not, don't do that. And, you know, and, and so then when you get the people and the, the labs and the universities that are, are taking it seriously and they're, they're doing the studies and they're looking into this and they're proving things immediately, these, the, the skeptical people slap that on the top and go, no, that it, that's, that's crap. That's not real. You know, I saw this on television yep. and I think, I think the Jersey devil is kind of falling into that same that same category in a lot of ways. Yes. But that being said, um, in we we know in 1909 there was a huge outbreak of Jersey Devil craziness, yep. paranoia, and fear, and all of that kind of thing. What at the time was was going on in the public consciousness in that point as well? Because what I've found is that usually when you get paranormal occurrences of of any type, there's something that's going on with with the consciousness of the people that is that is sparking that, that is generating, that is, that is generating that, that almost vibration, if you will, that frequency. What was going on at that time period? It, it's really interesting, you know, because it's, it's so similar to a time period that we've lived through as well, which was the, the turn of the century, yes. right? Had basically just happened. So we are entering into this, you know, progressive era, right? This whole, this whole shift in not just American mentality, but global mentality is taking place. And we, as, as a society, as a population, as a species, probably, we put a lot of weight on these, our perception of boundaries and things. So the, the crossing over, I mean, we can believe that our calendar systems are as arbitrary as we want them to be. But once we declare something like the end of a century, that carries a lot of weight for people. We saw this with Y2K when it happened. There was this absolute sense of impending doom that even if you weren't a doomsday prepper, you felt the tension of. Yeah. This is a big turn. This is a big turn in the timeline. And you know, folklorists look at these moments that are highlighted out of time as, as almost sacred spaces. They pull us out of normal secular time. So it's almost like we're waiting for something significant to happen. And so much cultural change is taking place. And so much social change is taking place that we almost get this feeling of, I don't know, chaotic psychic energy is just to let loose all over the place. And anytime that happens, and we can 
make claims or guesses about the direction of causation in any of this, we start to see a real upswing in a lot of supernatural activity. Yeah. The one thing that that I've I've found and that as we've been sort of going through these different different stories and and uh, events and whatnot th- throughout history, what what I've really begun to notice is that these 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 entities and these these stories, it's almost like the consciousness that is that entity is birthed from these stories. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting because I see the same pattern within uh, you know, places that are allegedly haunted and, and things like this as well, where that emotional connection between, yep. you know, th- that emotion that we're presenting, that we're pushing out there, that we're, you know, every thought that's ever been thought is still in existence type thing. And that this, yep. this energy is, is almost birthing its own consciousness. And I, I kind of wonder if, if yes. the Jersey Devil falls into that too. I think that is entirely possible because when we think about what's happening, I mean, this is a time of like political reform and, and industrialization and immigration and all of this stuff is happening. So it's, it's, I think it's something that we can all feel a connection to. The world is changing so fast around me, you know, where we're in a, a literal new era and it feels like a new era and things seem different and look different. And that agitation, I mean, in the sense of actual, like the, the agitation of, of a body of water, it creates ripples, waves, movement that then turns right back around and impacts us. You know, we, we're sort of buffeted by our own, our own cultural change, the, the sort of invisible influences that we're going through. And I do think that something like that, again, that question of possibility. I mean, here's, here's what it sort of comes down to for me as a folklorist is something's happening. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the most basic level here is when cross culturally, there is a stable pattern of expressed belief. And that might be cross culturally across regions or ethnicities that might be cross culturally throughout time periods in one given place we see an ongoing pattern of people saying, hey, this is happening. This thing that I can't totally explain is happening. It would be illogical of us to not consider that there is a concrete experience happening that people are responding to. Yeah, and I folklorists, so. you know, we, we, we call this the experiential source hypothesis, which basically says that sometimes the source of shared supernatural belief is just inexperience. Why do people believe that thing? Because something's happening to them. <laughs> That's why. Because something is actually taking place. You know, names, giving something a name like the Jersey Devil, the Leeds Devil, that comes from culture. So you have those words in your brain, you know, available to you to apply to a, a confusing or an ambiguous sighting because of where you've grown up, because of the stories that you grew up with. But the experience itself is almost acultural. Something's happening and you saw it. And now you're going to try and figure it out. And that's where the culture comes in. And we tend to assume it works the other way, that because you heard these stories growing up, because you were told this creature exists, that's why you think you saw it. And that's much less often the case than you would expect. I believe it. I, for a while, I was teaching uh, in post-secondary and, and teaching about the, the paranormal and, and belief systems. And it was a psychology and social work program. So a lot of the students would come in with these very set 
belief systems about how the world worked and how all their clients needed to understand how the world worked. And it, it's it's so interesting that, that you were talking about how people that label this this phenomenon as different things, because that's exactly what I saw as well, where they yep. were experiencing the same paranormal phenomenon. But yep. of course, every culture, whether it be somebody that's just come here from Haiti versus somebody who's come here from London, they've all got different terminology and they're all describing the same thing. It's the same thing. But they're all, yeah. you know, just they're using their own words or their own legends and their own stories to to try to make sense, to make sense of it. And I think that speaking and language plays such an important role with this story specifically because we yes. had at one point, of course, the, the legend goes, you know, Mother Lead saying, you know, let this child be the devil and cursing it and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And the I think the power of speaking and language is more prevalent in this story than almost any other Americana story. Yes, I agree completely because it it gives it an interpretation from the get-go that that says, here's what we're working with. We're dealing with a demonic presence. We're dealing with this sort of, you know, anti-Christian creature. That's the nature of this thing, as opposed to something that's from the get-go, though interpretations can vary, a little bit more neutral. I mean, the idea that the chupacabra might be an alien um, who, you know, crashed in Puerto Rico, and that's how that creature began spreading throughout the United States. That is uh, an explanatory model, but not one that's based, I mean, it's based in the belief system, I guess, that you would believe in extraterrestrial visitations to this planet, but it's not a particular religious system's belief. It's not saying you need to believe in demonic presence or even angelic presence or or the divine or anything like that. And it's it's interesting because we can take even those, you know, extraterrestrial beliefs, UFO beliefs, and we go back a few hundred years and in many ways they're indistinguishable from people's encounters of being abducted by the fairies and you kind of go, okay, we are interpreting something that's happening, something that people are experiencing through the lens of our current culture. So that doesn't make it more scientific to think that a chupacabra is some sort of alien creature than to think that the Jersey Devil was born because Mother Leeds, you know, dedicated this birth to the devil. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting, it's like there's this big commentary on belief systems going on in the background that yeah. we overlook when we just lump all these things together as legendary creatures. It's this conversation that <laughs> drew me to the supernatural and those kind of nice. things. It, it is all of that. It's so fascinating that, you know, people we've said here have these differing beliefs, but we're all really talking about the same things. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think it's interesting. Folklore studies as a discipline has a bit moved beyond the tendency to universalize. That's less our goal is what, how I would put it. As a discipline, we don't want to say everything's always the same because oftentimes if what we want to do is learn about a particular culture, we'll mm. learn more from the differences than from the similarities. But if what we're trying to learn about is the reality of the natural world, then looking at the commonalities makes more sense. David Hufford is an amazing folklorist who studied sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. And he looked at this, I mean, he was working in um, Newfoundland 
where there's a traditional belief in a creature called the old hag who comes into your room at night and sits on your chest and tries to suffocate you and holds you down and paralyzes you. And he was really interested in people's reported experiences with this. And if you or anyone you know has ever experienced sleep paralysis, they're probably (laughs) familiar with this. Um, But what Hufford found was that he would go talk about this belief in other places and people would come up to him and say, I've never heard of this old hag, but I've had that happen to me. Mm-hmm. which suddenly gives us that focus on, oh, wait a minute. Okay. I mean, maybe the fact that it's a hag is going to tell us something unique about Newfoundland and that culture, but the experience of waking up immobile, paralyzed with a presence in your room, that's human. That's not right. specific to a culture. That's that's somehow hardwired into our experience in this world. And that's where these universals become really interesting because then we can start to say, okay, so, you know, when we take out the cultural distinctions, when we take out names and belief systems and how it fits in to someone's cultural and social context, what are we left with? We're left with what's happening. We're left with what's there. Yeah. I think that that makes so much sense. And I, and I love, I love your analysis analogy with the, the sleep paralysis as well is that there is, there's something hardwired into into our our consciousness about that the uh uh, the researcher uh, christine simmons moore she she's been working on for a while now the the studies of the hypnopompic and versus hypnagogic hallucinations and that's been really fascinating because here where you know 10 years ago every single thing that came out of that state of being and for the for the audience hypnagogic is when you're falling just falling into sleep hypnopompic Mm -hmm. is when you're popping out of sleep and that sort of sleepy state but um she discovered that these aren't necessarily hallucinations and can't be can't be labeled as that and it's it's interesting that i think we're starting to understand a little bit more about the things that are are really hardwired into our consciousness that you know we have these experiences but they all just because they don't make sense can't all be lumped into a category of false. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I love that point because Hufford found the same thing looking at at the old hag one of the things he found if we want to call them hypnagogic hallucinations or hypnopompic hallucinations that doesn't account for why they would so often be the same exactly. for people. Why are there these consistent elements? And he even tried to strip out as much interpretation as possible. People would say, I heard footsteps coming down the hall. That's what woke me up. And he would say, no, 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 footsteps. That's an interpretation of the sound. What was the sound? And so people would say, you know, rhythmic scuffing noise and he would say well how would you make that noise without walking down the hallway and people would say things like I'd cover two blocks of wood and carpet and scrape them rhythmically against each other and it's like okay now that's an interesting noise and I know I grew up with sleep paralysis and I was in a constant state of describing to my parents what I always called a breathing noise a sort Mm -hmm. of heavy rhythmic huffing noise And I remember reading David Hufford's work and hearing someone describe rubbing two carpet covered blocks together. And I thought, oh, that's the huffing noise that I heard as a child, you know, and it's and and I interpreted it as breathing and other people interpret it as footsteps. But 
there's clearly a, a noise associated with this. And similar things that, you know, Raymond Moody found in studying near-death experiences that people, you know, hear certain things and see certain things. And when we take the cultural or religious interpretation out of it, seems like it's very similar. Well, Lynn, this has been such a wonderful conversation. And I just, I, I have, I know I have learned a ton. I know, Mike, you probably... <laughs> Yeah. Probably... I'm also also remembering my own sleep paralysis experience. Ooh. Was what was a... your sleep paralysis demon like? Um for me it was more of a feeling than an actual demonic thing. It was mm-hmm. uh I, obviously I couldn't move, but when you started talking about the sound, it was just like, "Oh my god, I have totally had that happen to me when wow. I was a little kid." Wow. And I haven't thought about it. In well, I'm 52, so I haven't thought about it <laughs> in quite a long time, and it just all came rushing back to me just now, like laying in my bed and hearing that that sound, and it to me it was like, uh, is it in me? Is this sound actually Ooh. coming from inside me, or is it something external? And I could never quite place it, which is really really weird, but. You know, you're laying there in bed looking at the ceiling and you can't move and it's yeah. dark and you hear that sound, that that swooshing sound. It, it was, whoa, now I'm, I'm totally sitting Man. here all freaked out in my little <laughs> studio. Yeah, that's crazy. And it never occurred to me to think of it as internally originating. That's fascinating. I always, I remember it so clearly. I must have seen a large ventilator system or like a large, you know, HVAC or something as a child, because I always had this sort of like, like, you know, wall of screening that I, I, it was a breathing wall. That's what it was in my mind, this wall that was breathing in and out. That's what I always envisioned was somehow near me. Well, I saw the walls breathing in and out one time when I was doing some uh, psychedelics, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) That that's a whole other podcast episode, right? Yeah, yes. Get, getting to that, but but absolutely. I mean, again, many of these experiences become consistent cross culturally. Even we use different names, but we we experience the same thing. And uh, you know, I do d- just sort of thinking about it. To me, as a folklorist, the actual nature of the Jersey Devil, figuring that out isn't the most interesting work to be done here. It's almost like whether it's a cryptid, whether it's a misunderstanding of a sandhill crane, whether it's a psychic projection or manifestation or an interdimensional anything, it's something that people keep seeing. And again, mm-hmm. like we don't we don't keep kids out of school and arm ourselves and and you know yeah. do all of this for nothing. And my my favorite all-time quote about legends, and I always try and get it out there because I love it, is, you know, legends can be true. Legends can be false. Legends are always right. They're always getting something right. And it's our job to Ooh. say, okay, what's this legend getting right? And oh, there's probably m- multiple answers. And some of those answers are what it's getting right is that there's a weird creature in the Pine Barrens in South Jersey, period. Yeah. Or it's getting right something about our internal states, right? Something something on an invisible level, but that is equally fundamentally true about humanity. 
just as true as a creature that lives in the Pine Barrens. And I find so both it, are intertwined. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and that relation of them to each other, it doesn't really make sense to extricate. I, I couldn't agree more. This... I love conversations like this because I think there's been about five aha moments. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. This is, and this is what I love because, and I love the, the, the platform to be able to do this because this is where the aha moments come from. And I yeah. love to be able to, <laughs> I, I've got, I've got goosebumps and I, I don't usually get them and I'm thrilled. <laughs> yay. Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled too. I'm excited. Thrilled. We can thank the Jersey Devil for this. No. We for can. This Everybody this give, is good. give the Jersey Devil a round yes. of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. When, when and I do, I do, I really do want to see the the artwork for this because the Jersey Devil is physically my favorite yeah. of the legendary creatures just because, man, you know. He will be in I your inbox. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Let the audience know where they can find you links whatever 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 you've got going on what are your new projects let them know awesome um well i'm on twitter i'm go back and forth between being fairly active and fairly inactive but it's at lynn s mcneil that's l-y-n-n-e-s-m-c-n-e-i-l-l i have an introductory folklore textbook out there for anyone who's interested it's called folklore rules it's really short it's really easy to read it gives you sort of a crash course in what the heck it is academic folklorists are doing with their time. There's a lot of people who have a, not an incorrect sense, but just a maybe a foreshortened sense of what it is that folklorists do and what folklore encompasses. And that book is just a really handy way to sort of hit it all at once, I think. Um, other than that, man, my current projects are all wrapping up. They're, they are as wide and varied as folklore studies is. I just, um, with two colleagues, put out a really fun book <laughs> on Utah food culture that's oh, called awesome. This is the Plate, which if you're not familiar with Utah, our old state slogan used to be This is the Place because it's where the Mormon pioneers showed up and the Salt Lake Valley spread out before them and Brigham Young said, this is our stopping point. Um, and so we named the book This is the Plate. We thought we were really clever. None of the reviewers got it. Oh, well. <laughs> no. um, but um, see, yeah. So, you know, my my interaction with folklore studies does go beyond the supernatural, but we all know the supernatural is the best part. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm really biased on that front. <laughs> you and me Thank both. Thank you guys. <laughs> Thank you both so much for having me here. This has been so awesome. I love it. I love it when different, disciplinary perspectives bring us to the same point yeah. when talking about something. And, you know, it does happen sometimes in the, with ghost hunters, with paranormal investigators, that there are those, those resonant moments where it's like, oh, hey, our different goals and disciplinary perspectives are bringing us together on this. And then it's sort of like, ooh, that's probably something we should all be looking at more. So I love collaborations like this. I love being involved in stuff like this. So thank you. That was fabulous. Yes. <laughs> Yay. I'm still, I'm still sitting here trying to figure out my demon or whatever that oh, is. <laughs> you know, it is, it's so odd. The, the visions that I always had too were very, um, and they, they matched up with a lot of the generalized characteristics, but they were always, they took a mechanical bent, not electronic, but like mechanical mechanical like i would see small wheeled machines mm -hmm. like rolling down the wall of my bedroom 
kind of like a pool vacuum, wow. you know, like a pool vacuum that wow. goes up and down the sides of the pool. I would see those. And I, it was less that I couldn't move and more in my mind, I didn't want to, cause I didn't want it to see me right. lying there. Yeah. It was almost like it was just exploring and I didn't want to get its attention. Um, and I have long believed that there was something, something was exploring my room. Yeah. It probably knew I was there. I was, it was a childlike sense that thought if I don't move, it won't see me. Um, but something was there. I was just scared to look. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's, I think that's a really common trait too. And probably a smart one. <laughs> I had another experience now. We're, we're talking about weird stuff. I was yeah. spending the night at my buddy's place and uh, we used to sleep in the same bed. We're kids. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night and looking and standing there beside the bed, I just see the head of this thing that had eyes like I described them like Spider Man eyes for years Whoa. and years and years. And then finally, when uh, Whitley Strieber's book Communion came out, it's like, oh my God, that's what I saw. It was, Whoa. Uh, you know, so from my kid's brain, because I was only familiar with Spider Man and something with that shape of eye at the time, mm -hmm. I thought, well, this thing has sort of black Spider-Man eyes. When, when I saw the gray alien on the cover of Whitley Strieber's yeah. Communion, it was like, well, it was that thing that wow. I saw when I was a little kid. So, I mean, we could do a whole, another episode on uh, gray aliens and why people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've, you've dug in deeply to that as well. And it is, that's another one of those patterns that you sort of go, there's no reason for this to be so consistently described. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's very, Other very than weird. there's something there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, and it's, it's interesting, like, you know, our last couple of episodes have been about the, the Wendigo and oh, yeah. we were talking about how that like the descriptions of the Wendigo seem to have been added onto with all of these different cultural influences that were coming in. Like the yeah. the Europeans, the French added the wolf like werewolf type look to it. And then yeah. the First Nations added the 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 antlers because of the Wendigo dance and, and it just it went back and forth. And what I found really interesting was that the the entity itself seemed to be changing shape with with these different cultural influences, even when people didn't know about the history of it. Yeah. And I ended up, I had this really great discussion with, um, with Chad Lewis, uh, who's a friend of mine. And he, he, we were going back and forth about this and we thought, you know, it's interesting if these things, you know, if they are something that is real, like physically real and is, is moving through the space and is thinking and feeling, then this, that, that entity itself, I wonder if that thought form has been added to. So therefore the thought form changes and yeah. evolves. Yeah. yeah, I this is one of my favorite sort of contemporary turns in thinking about belief is this idea that belief is constitutive, that belief generates the reality of things. I think Slenderman is an amazing yeah. example of this, where mm -hmm. there was clearly this sort of key baseline model waiting there to be tapped into. And Slenderman was not the first tapping into of of sort of this observer faceless, background, genteel, but frightening sort of character. But that particular articulation of that idea 
just captured so many people's imaginations that, you know, I've heard from a lot of students who've told me I drew Slender Man as a child before mm -hmm. Slender Man was a thing. I didn't have that name. I didn't have, you know, the, the story that's built up around that character, but I drew that thing first. Wow. And it's, it's really interesting to think, you know, what it does is it changes as a folklorist, the idea that the story or the creature has to come first, you know, we can, we can, I mean, it, yeah. there's been, there's long been sort of a distinction between known fiction and folklore. So, you know, when people say like, is Slenderman real? They're not even asking is Slenderman real? They're asking is Slenderman real folklore or did someone make him up at some point? And it's, it's sort of like that question becomes nonsensical. Yeah. Yes. And yes, is the answer. Yes. Yeah. Someone yeah. made him up at some point, but yes, the, the impact, the need, we needed him yeah. or we had him already and needed an articulation of him in our psyches. And so it's real and it wouldn't have stuck if it weren't right. Right. That's that same idea. Legends are always right. They don't stick if they're not getting something right. So right. what's, yeah. what's right about this? That is like that, the biggest takeaway from this conversation yeah. for me. I think that's brilliant. Me too. I just, I, I feel like it's such a, a solid articulation of why would we bother to study folklore, which as everyone sort of, you know, collectively knows can easily be false. I mean, to call something folklore isn't to say it is false. It's simply to say it is learned and shared and circulates outside of institutions on this word of mouth, everyday people level of culture. Often, though, certainly, things that circulate that way might be what we would call factually false, though not always with that either. But they won't stick around because there's no institution keeping this information alive. It's thriving on its own utility, its own relevance to us. So any folklore that's actively circulating is circulating because it's doing something that we need it to do. You know, I mean, like TV and movies have executive producers. They can keep going yeah. even if they're bad and irrelevant because someone's financially backing it. No one's financially backing folklore. It's got just its own relevance mm -hmm. to survive. So if it's surviving, it's relevant. It's relevant. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I just sent you the, I emailed you the Jersey Devil drawing. Oh, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I was, I was having so much fun creating because I was creating all these quirky characters. Oh, I love it. Isn't, oh, my isn't God. cute? Oh, oh, the expression on his face is beyond perfect. Yeah. Oh my goodness. He's great. Oh, he looks mildly concerned. Doesn't he? <laughs> Like, like, am anxious. I doing this right? Am I, am I manifesting correctly? <laughs> am I scary enough? Am I? <laughs> oh, oh my goodness! If I can buy that on a t-shirt, I want to. Well, we so, have t-shirts. So yeah. if, if you can send me a link, I would love to. I would love to to have that. <laughs> definitely do that. He's awesome. Yeah, we just we fell in love with him. We just... Oh my gosh. It's just uh, it really is. It's cryptid by committee. That's yes. all I can think of. <laughs> yeah. When I look at the Jersey Devil is it's just like let's get some bat wings. I would like goat hooves. I would like horns. <laughs> I'd like a like sort of a dragony feel, you know, like oh my goodness. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you like him. 
Oh, fabulous. Yes. Thank you again. I'm sorry. I don't want to keep you guys. I know we've been no, talking no, forever. No, you're the one no, clearly I could keep talking so. about this. So. Oh, no. Well, me too. Like, let's, oh, let's, man. let's plan another phone call or something off air because I, I would just absolutely, I'd love that too. So I, yes. <laughs> would be awesome. <laughs> absolutely. Well, stay in touch, please. Once the holidays are over, you know, things calm down a little bit. So that's good. Totally. I yeah. want to move to Utah now and attend your class. I'm so hey, fascinated. You know, I will admit our folklore program is pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, I, I'll, I, I'll send, we're in the middle of revamping the entire university website, but I'll give you that link as well. I mean, sadly we don't do, um, we have an online undergraduate minor. But of course, you have to be like enrolled at Utah State University <laughs> no. to take it. Um, but yeah, our graduate degree, unfortunately, is not and is not an online degree at this point. But I get a lot of people asking about it. And I'm sort of like, man, someday, someday yeah. we'll be able to make that available. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called pivoting. Every thought we have is actually two thoughts, what we want and what we don't want. Which side do you lean towards when you are faced with everyday decisions or faced with life-changing ones? Do you know what you don't want or do you know what you do want? Many people have a hard time answering that question for themselves, but we know based on research that if we lean in the direction of what we do want, more of it will show up in our experience. The next time you have a negative thought creep in and you find yourself being pessimistic, angry, or frustrated, take a moment to stop and imagine what it is you actually want instead. Once you've asked yourself, what am I actually asking for? Begin to imagine what that solution would feel like if it was already manifested. How would you feel about this right now? What would it be like, feel like, or look like if you were feeling the opposite of that negative emotion? Through this process, you'll begin to pivot your emotional center and find yourself less tolerant of your own negativity. With this shift in your day-to-day -day thinking, it's our promise to you that the external things will begin to change gradually into more and more of what you really want. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. And remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.